For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I'm Betty. I'm a flight attendant for a major airline, and I'm also an avid traveler. And I bring you stories from the airplane, from the pilots who fly those airplanes, and from traveling around the world. Now, I've had a few complaints that it's taken me quite a long time to get this new episode out, and I do apologize, but I was traveling. I went down to Baja, Mexico to do some whale watching, and because I am a traveler, there are going to be times where there will be gaps in the cast, because this way I can travel and bring you more stories. But I am back now, and this episode is called It's in the Air, because pilots and flight attendants spend so much time in the air, a lot happens, basically. Life happens in the air. So this episode, we're going to hear some stories about love in the air, being lost in the air, and we'll even need a doctor in the air. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to hear a story about drama in the air. And this story, it's quite a special story. It's a pilot who actually ejected out his story firsthand of ejecting out of an F-18 aircraft. And it's quite a long story. And I've been contemplating back and forth what to do with it, because basically it would take a whole episode. And I was trying to edit it down. And I really didn't want to because I don't know that many people who have actually ejected out of an aircraft and lived to tell the story. And so I didn't want to edit it way down. So what I'm going to do instead is we're going to do part one of the story in this episode, and part two next time. And it won't take me as long time as long to get the next episode out, I promise not planning on traveling in the next couple weeks. So we'll hear that story of drama in the air half this time, half the next time, and both of them stand on their own. So you can listen to one and not the other, and it'll be fine. So let's get going with some stories about love in the air. Okay, you know, when um, the AFLAB, the smoke alarm started going off. So, two of us go back and check to see what's going on. Well, the, we pound on the door, and then the, there's people saying, we're not smoking. We're not smoking. What do you mean, we, right? <laughs> and so, okay, fine, but the alarm is still going off. We need to make sure that they get out of there and we can go check the bathroom and check the make sure there is no fire well <laughs> took them a little while but we're not smoking don't worry we're coming out <laughs> Why was the alarm going on? I know but what had happened was they thought they'd more join the mile high club but when they came out the whole, the whole bathroom was steaming 
It was the body heat that set off the alarm. Because we went back in and there wasn't any fire, really. Are you serious? I'm serious. Yes. Can you imagine? <laughs> We're not smoking. Well, this is um, an old story from an older flight attendant. And if you have talked to any flight attendants that have been around since late 60s, they'll tell you that the airline is considerably different today than it was back then. Back then, a captain was considered God. So she's on her very first trip from small town, Texas, I believe, someplace, fairly naive. And she's going to a, a large city. I believe it was New York City, although I'm not totally sure. This captain, she was very cute, and the captain was a, obviously a dirty old man and, and uh, had his eye on her. And so he was hitting on her most of the time. And, and he said, you know, it's real dangerous in uh, these hotels and everything, and I'll be more than glad to take you up to the room and make sure it's safe and everything before you, you know, go to your room at night. So she thought, well, God, this guy really cares about me. It's nice that he would go up and spend the time to do it. So he, they go up into the room. They go in the room, and he makes a big production about checking inside the shower, checking under the bed, checking in the closet. And then after he had done all that, he went up and he shut the door, locked it, and put the chain on. And at that point, she's getting real scared. He turns around then and starts taking his clothes off. And he gets down to his underwear, comes up to her, starts to put his arms around her, give her a kiss. She's like, oh, my God, and immediately just pushes him as hard away as hard as uh, she can. He trips over the edge of the bed, and when he falls, he hits his head on a dresser and knocks himself out cold. So now she's sitting, very first trip with, with a half-naked captain laying on the floor, knocked out cold. She had no idea what to do, but she was convinced if she, anyone learned about it, she was going to get fired. So she just sat there and waited until he woke up finally. And he was so embarrassed when he came to, he put his clothes on and left, and that was the end of it. So... That was her very first trip. The buck-naked pilot. With half-naked pilot. <laughs> hey, now, what do I do? Get on the bus, text me to you. Now, I'd say that most people don't like to be lost anywhere, but I think you especially don't want to be lost when you're in the air. Chicago gives Lufthansa. Lufthansa. The uh, instructions like taxi inner wedge cargo branch parallel to two seven left and uh, Lufthansa. It's complicated, right? Lufthansa. The Germans are very precise people for the most part, and so he says, "Roger." And uh, a few seconds later, Lufthansa, are you familiar with where you're going? No. <laughs> he said, "Turn right at the first intersection." Lufthansa comes back, Roger. Another 30 seconds goes by and he says, Lufthansa, I told you to turn right at the first intersection. He said, we did. He said, Lufthansa, you turned left at the first intersection. I told you to turn right at the first intersection. He said, we turned right at the first intersection. And without skipping a beat, the controller says, well then, damn it, you're sitting in the cockpit backwards. On the 727 out of Denver, and there were four flight attendants on the airplane, but one of the flight attendants got off to check a bag. Well, we uh, close the door and we start to taxi out, and all of a sudden my 
best friend and I are in coach and we're doing the demo and we look out the side of the airplane and here's our fourth flight attendant running <laughs> alongside the 727 in the snow trying to catch up with us. <laughs> are you serious? Yes. And so <laughs> I'm about ready to wet my pants at this point and so I go and turn around and go up to the A flight attendant, and I said, uh, did you notice we were missing somebody? And she said, yes, but we had a supervisor from Minneapolis on, and of course he was seated on that side of the airplane, and he could look out there too, and I happened to know him. And she said, uh, but we have a supervisor on, and so they're going to stop the airplane and put the air stairs down and let Sandy come up, but tell Sandy to keep a low profile because we have a supervisor on. And I said, keep a little profile. The whole airplane can see her running alongside. <laughs> so I went back and I told Don that. And he was laughing, too. So that we finally stopped. And, of course, it was snowing out there, too. And she was in her um, red and white check server and in a short sleeve blouse and with the snow falling and everything and just running as fast as she could to keep up with us. And they put the air stairs down. And she came up and walked through the whole cabin then because that was the only way she could get to first class and everybody applauded. Taking off from Kansas City and uh, going back to Atlanta. So basically it was a flight from the west to the east. So uh, we were taking off on runway 9, which was basically an easterly heading for Atlanta. However, from the time we started taxiing until well after takeoff, I had it in my head that we were taking off to the west. So shortly after takeoff, when departure control, uh, we were released from tire to departure control, departure control turn direct to a point which was on our route of flight heading directly to Atlanta. Being a new co-pilot, being my leg and flying the airplane and also uh, thinking that I was heading west, I go to my, I think to myself that gosh okay if I'm going to be going direct I have got to make this nearly 180 degree turn oh my. in order to go direct. So uh, when departure control picked us up and told us to go direct to this point, I immediately started a 180 degree turn to go the wrong direction. Like about, spinning, right? Yes, at about three quarters of the way through the turn, you get this rather uh, sinking phone call from the ground controller that says, where are you going? I said, I'm turning direct to whatever the point happened to be. He said, are you sure? Of course, those are three words that strike fear in the hearts of all pilots. Are you sure? Wherein uh, the captain looked over at me, smiled very broadly, and says, I don't think you know where you're going. <laughs> Upon which he tells me that, you know, we took off to the east, and that point is straight ahead, not behind you. So after much red face and uh, some explaining to the ground controllers, I immediately started my turn back heading directly to the point I was supposed to be going to, and uh, all was forgotten and all was forgiven.
doing an, another episode with a lot of medical stories. And before we start this short medical story, I'd actually like to thank all the medical professionals out there, considering every time, and I should knock on wood, that every single time I've had a medical emergency or even a, just a medical incident, and we page for a medical professional on board, we have just been so blessed that somebody comes forward to help, and really, they don't have to. They're not working, and they put themselves out. They put themselves, you know, in the line of fire, and they're always there to help, and I'm so thankful. So let's see if there's a doctor in the air. Okay, we were um, in the air flying between um, L.A. and Sacramento, I think it was, and we had a medical emergency, and um, the fellow that was having the problem apparently was having a um, seizure, but he was acting very strange. I mean, he was, he tried to put oxygen on him, and he was trying to grab the mask, the tubing, and stick it up into the sidewall lighting area, and acted very strange, and he kind of just kind of passed out a little bit. So we asked for if there was any medical, um, a doctor or a medical person on board, and she was a doctor. She was from France. And she said that she was a doctor in, in France, and so kind of looked at her her documentation, and we figured that she was a doctor. So, he, anyways, he's laying there, and and he's she's pinching his ear. To, to, and she said, "This is the doctor. The doctor is pinching his ear, his earlobe, and really pinching it hard." And she said, "This is a good way to see if they're conscious or not." So, anyways. We, he revives himself, and we decide we, we're going to make an emergency landing and get him down, have the paramedics make the flight. So the paramedics come on. They, we deplane everybody. Paramedics come on, and they, they ask him his name. You know, um, do you know what day it is? Da, 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 da. He says, how are you feeling? He says, I'm feeling fine, but my ear really hurts. <laughs> Now, as promised, here's our drama in the air story. Well, a close, a close call of the almost terminal kind. It was flying uh, back in good old Navy days, 1987, flying the F-18. Well, we were out on on a one v one v one, and for you folks who know what that means, it's it's when you're three airplanes in the flight and nobody's your pal. So each one of the aircraft is fighting the other two. We were out in the warning area off the coast of Florida. I was actually out of the fight to the south, and I was going to come back in and try and attack one of the two other airplanes that was up there. The junior guy in the flight had just been shot, so in, in order for him to regain his life, so to speak, he needs to head out of the 10-mile the radius of the fight circle to regenerate and come back in and fight after that. So he was exiting the fight to the south, and I flew right past him the other way and had made a comment to him that, you know, he could, he could come and catch me if he could try. Uh... I saw the airplane that had just shot him, and, and I had rolled in behind him. And we were using a, a weapon set that was just rear quarter, guns and, and, and old Soviet missiles. So basically you had to attack the guy from behind. You couldn't just shoot him in the face. So he was up there just droning around. He didn't see me, and I came up from behind him and took the missile shot and was closing for the gunshot on him. And uh, we were, you know, 20,000 feet doing better than 400 knots and, you know, climbing turn. And just as I was completing the gunshot on him, 
out of the corner of my eye, I saw another airplane coming up uh, in the F-18. The leading edge extensions in front of the wings kind of block your view down from the cockpit. So he came up from just underneath that blind spot, and I'm looking, I mean, I'm looking at the belly of the airplane just coming straight at me. I mean, it was kind of obvious at that point that he had seen the other airplane that I was shooting didn't see me, and he was trying to get to that same point in the sky where he could shoot him. So, and we were going really fast. And I mean, in that instant, you knew that there's no way that you're going to alter your geometry enough to avoid the collision. So, you know, in the, my best piloting posture there, I shot a course of adrenaline through my body, pulled as hard as I could, and then kind of curled up into the fetal position and braced for what I thought was going to be the last couple of seconds of my life. When the airplanes hit, the first thing I felt was, uh, was obviously a pitching forward of my airplane. And I mean, judging by what I had seen, I, I was amazed that I just wasn't obliterated right at the point in time. So that you're doing a normal hand clap, that's about how we hit. Square on, belly to belly, but the cockpits weren't completely aligned. So when my airplane uh, disintegrated, the cockpit actually broke off. So from a point about five or six feet behind me, which is about where the main fuel tank is on the airplane, which comes into play here in a second, everything behind that went away. So now I'm just riding the bullet, forward out of this collision. Both of the cockpits completely sheared off and headed in opposite directions while the bulk of the airplanes just exploded. So the airplane pitches forward and we're going pretty fast. I mean, and, and you could kind of tell, you know, when you're flying the airplane, your body, your seat of the pants lets you know exactly what's going on. And, and judging by the pitch forward and the way that the cockpit, what's left of the cockpit was rotating, I knew there wasn't anything behind me. I knew there wasn't a big airplane behind me because now I'm spinning in this little cockpit. Now you weren't injured at this point? No, well, no. I mean, at this point, I don't know. All I know is I'm still alive and, and I got to do something because obviously I don't have an airplane left to bring me back home. So the airplane pitches, well, the cockpit pitches forward, and as it starts to rotate, once it goes through that first 180 degrees of turn, now imagine it's moving forward at 400 miles an hour and it's rotating. All of that fuel in the fuel tank, which is now definitely on fire, completely envelops the cockpit that I'm riding in. Now an F-18's got a big glass canopy and you're sitting right next to it and you're looking about six inches away from your face, there's fire everywhere. So as I'm spinning around, I'm now in the fireball as we're going along here. I pull on the, I look down, violate the first rule of ejections and get out of the proper seat position. I look down to find the handle and pull it and uh, then immediately the, the ejection sequence goes off, which I, at this point I think is pretty amazing because my airplane's destroyed. So the canopy fires, and uh, you know, I, in, in the typical slow motion that, that you experience when you're going through something like that, I'm looking down, I see the rocket motors start to fire and all of the dust and crap that's in the cockpit basically just starts to blast off from underneath me. And I can see the plane actually, I don't feel myself going up, I just see the airplane going down. And out I went. Now, of course, I'm going through the fireball at this point without the canopy there to protect me. And, and the fact that comes into play now is it was late in the day and it was a high overcast. So instead of being, being the good boy and have my visor down, you know, to protect myself, I had it up so I could see. So now I'm going out with my visor up and, you know, just my, my face in the fireball, so to speak. So we go busting on through the fireball, and uh, the next thing that you're expecting to happen is, you know, a parachute. But at 
20,000 feet, the parachute's not going to deploy. It's got its own little barometric device in there, so it's not going to deploy until you get down to a, you know somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or 11,000 feet. So it's weird, so you're still connected to the seat. You're in the seat for a long time when you eject that high. I mean, you're riding it down. So, you know, I come tumbling out of the fireball. The drag chute comes. The seat stabilizes. And, I mean, at first, at this point, I'm just curious. I'm looking around. I'm trying to figure out what's what. But as I look up to see the drag chute, I also catch sight of the remains of the fireball that are up there. Third, the guy that I had shot who wasn't in the collision is looking over his shoulder at me at this time, seeing the fact that I shot him, and, and is just looking in that direction when the other airplane flies right through me. So he, he immediately, his IQ drops to about single digits at that point, and he just starts babbling mayday into the radio. I mean, he's just seen the worst thing he's ever seen in his life, and later on he described it that it looked like the Challenger explosion. It was just a giant fireball with crap going everywhere. And he figured the two of us were, you know, vaporized instantly. Now I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I know i got to get down to 11,000 feet before this chute opens up, so I look at my watch. I mean, in retrospect, I don't know what the hell I'm thinking. Like, I'm going to start doing a physics calculation here in the middle of the Atlantic trying to figure out, okay, at a terminal velocity of X, how long is it going to take me to get to 11,000 feet? So I'm sitting in this seat, 20,000 feet, looking around. It's real windy. And I'm thinking, first thought is, well, good, I know I'm up high, but at least, you know, in the seat when you eject, you've got your oxygen mask on, and there's some an emergency oxygen in the seat that keeps supplying you. So I reach up to adjust my mask to make sure that I've got a, a good solid flow of emergency oxygen, and the first thing I discover is that the hose that connects the seat to my mask is ripped off during the ejection. So I basically get this plastic nose cone on my mouth now that's just got a big hole in it, and I'm breathing outside air. But I figure I'm probably not going to go hypoxic at this point. I mean, you know, I just got too much adrenaline running through me. It's crazy how many things you're thinking of during this amount of time. Because how much time could it be? Well, I don't know. But your brain's working really fast, and it seems like you're up there for a really damn long time. So I'm coming down, and I'm sitting in the seat, and I'm, you know, just looking around at this point. And after, you know, after I had looked up the first time and saw that fireball and saw the debris that was up there, I mean, frankly, it just scared the shit out of me. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to look up anymore because... I survived this. Nobody's going to know I lived through that crash. I'm probably going to get hit by something, you know, during the, the fall here. It'll kill me, and they'll think I died. You know, oh, he died. An inst it, it was painless. It was instantaneous. Little did they know I was, like, you know, riding all the way down, trying not to get hit by something in the head. So I wouldn't look up anymore. So I'm just looking around me, you know, side to side horizontally, and I catch something out of the corner of my left eye. And I look over there, I mean, I kind of crank my head around, and I look to the left, and I see the back half of one of the two airplanes. Now, it's not, I mean, the, the cockpit's gone, the wings are gone, but you see the back of the fuselage, and you see the rudders and the stabilizer. And imagine this thing doing kind of like this little lazy, frisbee-like cartwheel. So it's coming down, I mean, we're both coming downhill at a pretty fair rate of speed, but it's staying at the same altitude I am. It's just carving this little circle around me. So basically, my airplane is, or one of the airplanes, is, is doing this cartwheel, and it's circling around me from the left to the right. And the thing's only a few hundred feet away from me. So, I mean, we're coming down together, and this thing's now spinning around me. And I'm watching it go all the way from the left, my left field of view around the front of me and out the right side, out the right field of view. And, I mean, I'm sitting there with eyes wide, and I can only imagine what I look like at this point going, holy shit, I don't believe this. 
So, I, you know, I kind of follow it around to the right until I can't see it anymore, and I'm shaking my head thinking, okay, now, now i got more things to worry about than just the debris field above me. And next thing I see is one of the missing wing panels doing, you know, the falling leaf thing, and that comes down, I mean, within 100 feet of me for sure. So that kind of subsides a little bit, and I start looking at my watch again for what I don't know, but thinking, yeah, waiting for the shoot, thinking, you know, sooner or later it's got to be 11,000 feet. Now, my fear at this point is that, you know, hey, I've been lucky so far. The seat actually worked. I got out of the airplane. But what if, you know, what if it's malfunctioning now and it doesn't know when it gets to 11,000 feet and I'm going to have to manually, you know, what you call beat the seat? i got a manual handle down there that I can pull. It'll release the chute. But I think, well, just, you know, just for grins, I ought to make sure that I can reach down and feel that handle and know where it is just in case I need to get to it in a hurry. You know, so I'm waiting, waiting, and I think, well, you know, I'm starting to think that maybe this isn't going to happen. I ought to be at 11,000 feet by now. Still looking at my watch, still thinking, you know, I, I should be able to do this map. I think it's funny you keep looking at your watch. I'm still looking at the watch. <laughs> so I look down, I put my hand on the handle, and before I can pull it, the parachute goes on its own. So now, and let me tell you, you know, you, you go out on the ejection, you, you pretty much get crunched up. You know, the, the, the stories about the ejection forces are all true. You crunch up. I had to be two inches shorter after that ejection. But let me tell you, when the parachute opened, That's a strong I got it all right back again when the parachute opened. That's like 300 G's. But you're, you're in there. You're glad the chute's open. You're alive. And you, got some, you still got more work to do. So, you know, down I come in the parachute. And I haven't been through survival school in years at this point. And, you know, you kind of wonder from time to time, am I ever going to remember all of that junk they teach us to do? I got news for you. Those brain cells are still alive and well. And when you need them, they're exactly right there. I mean, I went through the playbook just like I was at survival school as a brand-new ensign. Okay, I'm sorry, I don't know. Do you stay connected to the chair? No, at this point, when the parachute opens, the chair leaves. Okay, I'm like, this just seems weird and the, to the chair. But the chair leaves because it just can't hang on anymore. It's actually got fittings on it that at a certain G-force, you it rips you. the parachute rips you out of the chair. And we're going to pick up the rest of this story, basically the story in the water, next time on Betty and the Sky with the Suitcase. So I hope you'll join me again next time so we can travel the world together. Bye.